You are watching Christ's Commission Fellowship. Changing lives for eternity. If you have your Bible with you, I'm going to turn to two passages. You'll see them on the screen. The first came from the Apostle John. And he said, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world or our culture. The second passage of importance is found in Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may demonstrate or discern what is the will of God and what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Success and achievement as viewed by the world is vastly different than how God views the same thing. Success from God's point of view is different. Our culture, however, has a totally different concept of success. For just a few moments, consider some of the following names. I'm sure you will recognize some of them. George Eastman, who was the founder of Eastman Kodak. Lee Ki Pong, the vice president of Korea. Kurt Cobain, musician. Vincent van Gogh. I once held one of his paintings in my hand that was valued at $50 million US. He first studied for ministry, but finally became a very famed painter. Ernest Hemingway, author of the book For Whom the Bells Toll. Marilyn Monroe. Oh, you remember her, even though she's been God for a long time. Lauren Scott, a fashion designer. More recently, Robin Williams. All of the names of the people that I just mentioned, these individuals had two things in common. Number one, they reached the top of the ladder. And number two, unsatisfied, they ended up taking their own lives. Success, from God's point of view, is vastly different. It has nothing to do with fame or fortune. It has everything to do with seeking and finding and doing the will of God for your life. It has everything to do with allowing the Holy Spirit to make your body His temple and to give you the power of the Holy Spirit to live as God wants you to live. It has everything to do with being a light in a dark world and filling you with Himself, making you the person God designed you to be. But in the world, in the culture in which we live, individuals are often willing to barter some things to help them get to the top. There are, however, landmines that can turn around and destroy you. Those three are, number one, your integrity. Number two, the willingness to sacrifice your marriage and family. And then number three, 
to satisfy or to sacrifice your very health. Let's take just a few moments and look at some of those. First of all, your integrity. Your character and your integrity are vitally intertwined. Simple definition of integrity is doing what you say you will do. This morning as I was having breakfast, I picked up the Philippine Star. They have a Sunday edition and a magazine, and for many years they have carried one of my commentaries in their magazine. So this morning I took the magazine and I flipped it open, and here behind the front page was my commentary for today. Character and integrity is the title. I'll read just a sentence or two. When General William Dean was a prisoner of war, he was permitted to write only one letter home, so he wrote this to his son. He said, Bill, remember that integrity is the most important thing of all. Let it always be your aim. Integrity is never majored by a percentage. He has 42% integrity. Oh, she has 75% integrity. Either you have integrity or you don't have integrity. Integrity is so very, very important. I'm thinking of a policeman who was standing by Edsa near the bus lane. And somebody who was in a big hurry to make a right-hand turn starts driving in the bus lane. The policeman pulls the guy over and he says, may I see your driver's license? The guy reaches in his pocket, he finds his wallet, and he brings out his driver's license, and underneath the driver's license, there's a 500 peso note. Now, I have never done this, but I have been with individuals who did that. And so they hand the driver's license to the policeman, and he goes like this, and one hand goes in his pocket, and the other gives him back the license with a word of rebuke. But the policeman didn't do that. He held the two up, and he says, um, is this a bribe? And the guy says, oh, sir, I cannot say, I cannot say. The policeman said, look, I used to be corrupt and I took bribes, but two years ago I went to CCF and I was born again. And then he said, I do not take bribes, but if you put it in a white envelope and mark it, love gift, I will take it. <laughs> and then, there was a Toronto newspaper, this is true, I'm not sure about what I just told you, but a Toronto newspaper kept getting reports from customers who said, I take my car to the garage for a repair, and the mechanic will say I need all kinds of work done, and they're very expensive. So the newspaper said, okay, you're a reporter. I want you to go visit a number of garages and find out if the reports are true. So the reporter took his vehicle 
and he would approach a garage, but he would stop before he got there, raise the hood, take off a spark plug, and as many of you know, if the spark plugs are not connected, the car doesn't run worth too fiddle. And so the guy would pull in the garage and the car would be going and the person would say, I don't know anything about engines or cars, but my car doesn't run very good. Can you fix it? And so the mechanic would raise the hood. Oh, you need a new carburetor. Well, how much is that going to cost? Quite a lot. I don't have that much money. So he would go to another garage and he would, same song, second verse, take off a spark plug wire, pull in. My car is running terribly. What do I need to do? Oh, you, you need a new distributor. That's your problem. How much does it cost? Well, I don't have that much money. Third stop, same song and dance. Then he pulls into another garage, and he tells the mechanic the same story. The mechanic raises the hood. He says, the problem is you got a spark plug disconnected. Boom. And so he says, how much do I owe you? He said, you don't owe me anything. He said, I'm a Christian and I run a clean shop. Ah, and that was what the reporter wrote about. The three who wanted to do all kinds of unnecessary work and this guy who runs an honest shop. One week later, the honest mechanic calls the reporter and said, would you please run another story and tell people to stop coming to my garage? I can't get any work done. They line up for blocks and they all want me to help them. That is what you call integrity. Either you have it or you don't. The second landmine is being willing to sacrifice our marriage and family because we're not there for them. God gave you a wife to be part of you. He gave you a husband so that you can share life together. When we were living here, I had a call one day from a businessman who said, I really need to talk with you. I will always remember, he sat down in my office and he began by saying, Dr. Sala, I've been very successful. I already knew that. I also knew that the name of his company was on some billboard in every major city in this country. And he said, I have more than 2,000 employees in my company for whom I'm directly responsible. And then he looked at the floor, but he said, but when it comes to my marriage and family, I've been a miserable failure. And he told me of a broken relationship with his wife and of two teenage children who wanted his money, but they wanted nothing to do with him. And I would ask you, has a man really succeeded who has only learned how to make money, but who has failed in the most important of human relationships, that involving our own families? Song of Solomon 1 verse 6 says, You have made me a keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard have I not kept. And then there's a third minefield, and that is the individuals who pour themselves so much into achieving things, they destroy their health. And so 
They take the money that they've made and they spend their money trotting all over the world trying to get somebody to help them. Go to Singapore, go to Hong Kong, go to Mayo Clinic in the United States, forgetting there are very good doctors in this very country. Okay, how can you have a life that is pleasing to God and yet succeed in what he wants you to be and what he wants you to do? Number one, turn your life and your resources over to God and give him your plans. This is a conscious effort, something that you do. Nobody can do it for you. Some of you may recognize the names Bill and Vonette Bright. They were the individuals who established a ministry called Campus Crusade. Now it's called Crew. Bill had been a businessman, and when he became a Christian and he began to understand what God's plan and purpose for his life was, he drew up a legal document, a legal document, and they bequeathed everything they owned to Jesus Christ. In his book, A Hundred Years From Now, Steve Murrell tells about the time his boys were ages three, five, and eight. And Steve and his wife were trying to teach the boys that when you come to the table, you wait until everybody is finished, and then mother or dad will say, you can be dismissed from the table. Jonathan, their youngest, was three years old. And after two or three days, he forgot that he was supposed to ask to be dismissed from the table, and so he took his mug of coffee and his, or his, mag, his mug with milk in it, and trying to be invisible, he starts toward the refrigerator. The dad says, where are you going, son? He says, milk, I need, need more milk, dad, need more milk. And then he took his cup and turned it upside down to show it was empty, and the milk that was in this dribbled down his pant leg. So his father says, son, Who's in charge here? Little boy looked up his dad and said, me and you, dad, me and you. Who's in charge? Your heavenly father who knows what you need? Or are you in charge? And if you like what you think he may do, you say, okay, dad, okay, heavenly father. He wants to be in charge of everything in your life. Easily done? No. Very difficult, very challenging. Do you know why? Because we don't want to lose control. When you take your life and your resources and you turn them over to him, you put yourself in a position whereby he blesses you and shows you his greatness and his power. So the second thing that I would suggest is you acknowledge that what you have really belongs to the Lord by taking a tenth of your income and giving it back to the Lord. In the Old Testament, it was called a tithe. Occasionally, I am asked, should you tithe your net or your gross? 
And I usually say, depends on whether you want a net blessing or you want a gross blessing. Okay. A few years ago, I was in northern Luzon in a place called Boon Hen, in Boon Thigi. And I had gone in with a medical team, and in the daytime, men and women came down from the tribal areas and we ministered to their needs. But then along towards the setting of the sun, more people converged. Now, Wycliffe Bible translators had been there and translated the New Testament, but there was no CCF, no, quote, church. But there was a community hut. There was a roof over it, and the walls, of course, were open, and about 75 people packed into this as the sun was setting in the western sky. I was the one who spoke that evening. It was a slow evening because I spoke in English, and it was translated into Ifugao and Ilocano. And about 11 o'clock at night, my translator began asking for questions. And I responded to a few questions, and then she points to a guy over here and he says, that man has a good question he wants you to ask her, to ask. I said, sure, what's the question? The question is, he's asking, why should we who have so little give to God who has so much? I had said nothing about money, but this guy was thinking. I took a look at him. He's sitting on his haunches. Uh, I'm not going to try to show you because I'd probably fall over, only try that in a gym. But, I mean, the guy's been sitting there for two hours like that. He has never seen a TV set. He has never seen a cell phone. He has never seen high-rise buildings like we have here in Manila. But he's thinking, why should we who have so little give to God who has so much? I paused for a few moments, and I said there are three reasons. Number one, simple obedience to what this book says. And what does it say? Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, Upon the first day of the week, that Sunday, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him. Simple obedience to what God asks you to do. I said the second reason, and this is not why you should do it. It is a means of procuring the blessing of God. It was not a TV evangelist who said this. It was Jesus who said it. He said, give, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For with the same measure that you give, it will be given back to you. From the day my wife and I married, we have given a tenth or more to the Lord's work. You cannot outgive the Lord. He continues to bless and to bless and to bless. I said the third reason, you can pull your resources together and then you can send somebody over the mountain into the next valley and tell them about Jesus Christ. That's what missions is all about. But you know something? You don't have to go across a mountain range to tell somebody about Jesus. I've got a little booklet in my hand. Ah, some of you have little booklets in your purse or lying on your dresser drawer at home because when you were here at CBF or at uh, 
Uh, CCF, you were given one of these not too long ago, right? How many of you have shared this little booklet with somebody? Could I see your hands? Great! Congratulations! How many of you have been waiting to find the right opportunity? Make an opportunity! You love somebody? You care something about them? Something that I have used over the years is this. If you stood at the door of God's heaven and knocked, and Peter should open the door and say, why should I let you in? What would you say? And most people would say, well, I've been a pretty good guy. I've given a lot of money. I've done, uh-uh. Would you like to know what the Bible says? Yeah. And that's your opportunity to share your faith. Do it. Number three, to have a life that is pleasing to God and to find His power for your life. Present your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. Scripture says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. The price was the very blood of Jesus Christ. God made you in His image. Do you realize that your body is a beautiful act of creative power? Your brain is like a control center. It is said that 10,000 thoughts flit in and out of your brain every day. For just a moment, look up at one of the spotlights overhead. As soon as you see something bright, the iris of your eye begins to shrink so that your vision is not heard. But if you're in a dark room, the iris of your eye will open up so that you can see more. It is God who did that. But what really keeps you alive is located six inches below the collarbone on the left-hand side. It is your heart. Your heart. Do you know that your heart pumps 1,800 gallons of blood every day? It beats 35 million times a year? That's awesome. God made you as an awesome person. Bite your tongue for a minute. Do you know that your tongue is the most sensitive part of your body? It tells you whether something is sweet or something is sour. And then take your wrist and just wiggle it around like this. Okay, one of my heroes was Dr. Paul Brand. Dr. Brand spent his life working among the lepers in India. He said, your wrist is the epitome of God's great creation because of its dexterity and what you can do with it. He says, present your body as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifices, though, have one problem. They like to crawl off the altar. And that is why every morning when you wake up, you need to say, Jesus, let's walk together today. I don't know what you've got for me out there, but I give myself to you completely. Guide me, direct me, use me. Wow. And then Scripture tells us, I, urgent, I urgently ask you, brothers, with the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. 
And then a command. Don't be conformed to this world. Another translation puts it, don't let the world force you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing, the renewing of your minds. How are we transformed? Transformation is the result of two things. Number one, it is a knowledge of God's will that is revealed in this book. And secondly, it is the enabling and the powering of the Holy Spirit that gives you strength and wisdom and insight and knowledge far beyond that which you could have any other way. So this brings me to point number four. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I pause for a minute and ask the question, what is the Spirit-filled life? Number one, it is not a super deluxe edition of the Christian life that is reserved only for a few super-duper Christians, like pastors, like missionaries, like people who are in cloisters who can only focus on God 24-7. No. The Spirit-filled life is God's provision for every one of His children, for each one of you. Number two, the Spirit-filled life is a definite, recognizable condition. Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, said, if you're a Spirit-filled Christian, your husband will know it, your wife will know it, even your dog or cat will know it. Okay, remember the early church? As the early church was growing, the apostles were consumed with taking care of the needs of people. And so they said, choose out from you seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and faith. They knew that by, they knew who was spirit-filled and who was not spirit-filled. The spirit-filled life is not a destination. The Spirit-filled life is an event and a walk. Fifty-seven years ago, I stood at a marriage altar and I took my vows. I herald, take you, Darlene, to be my lawfully wedded wife, to have and to hold from this to be forward, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. Hey, we're married. Do you remember your first night together after you were married? Okay, if that's all the memories you have, it would be something in the past. But what has made our 57 years so wonderful together is that ongoing 24-7 relationship. We pray together, we work together, we talk together. Now, the Spirit-filled life is an event, but it is a lifestyle as you live and you walk in the Spirit. It is also the key to spiritual power. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Now let me pause and give you a short Greek lesson. There are two Greek words that are both translated to be filled. For example, I have a bottle of water here, and I have a mug. Okay, this is a simple filling. I just simply put 
water into the mug and I fill the mug up. That is not the word that is used in Ephesians 5.18. There is a second word, and it indicates something is missing. And when something is added to it, then it has power. Picture a sailboat down on Manila Harbor. There's no wind, no breeze. The sails are up, but it's not moving. And then the breath of air begins to fill the sail, and the boat takes off. That's the word that Paul used in Ephesians 5.18 when he said, be filled with the Spirit. In other words, something very important is missing in your life and your Christian relationship until you become a Spirit-filled Christian. Now, how can we become Spirit-filled Christians? The terminology is not important. The reality is of prime importance. Jesus told the disciples, go back to Jerusalem and stay there because you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit in a few days. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, Luke, who records what took place on the day of Pentecost, uses a different term, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I have to tell you, there are no how to be filled with the Holy Spirit in five easy lessons that are recorded in Scripture. But I do believe there are steps that take us in a progression to the place where we seek a Spirit-filled life, and I want to share them with you. Number one, you must recognize your need to be a Spirit-filled Christian. It is one thing to look at somebody else and say, boy, that is exactly what he need. What this guy Sailor was talking about today, if, if he had that, boy, he'd be a different person. It is something else for you to look yourself in the mirror and say, you need spiritual power. You need to be on top of things, not be driven by the culture of the world. John Harold Ockengay was uh, one of the evangelical leaders of the 20th century, and he said this, it is necessary for us to confess the condition of being carnal, of being dissatisfied with our spiritual existence. It is necessary to face our inward sinfulness, to realize that the joy of forgiveness, of new life, of an eternal inheritance is not all that Christ has for us. We must confess that we need a greater work of grace. Jesus himself made this very clear. He said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Number two, confess any known sin in your life. Any known sin in your life. You may say, like what and why? God wants a clean vessel. You get on your knees before God, and you begin to search your heart. Now, 
Let's suppose that you wanted to buy a house that was larger than the one you're living in right now. So you looked and you finally found a two-story home and you walked through it and it looked like it would meet your needs. You made an offer and the man who owned the house says, yes, however, there is one caveat, one restriction. We have an attic room. And I have some things in the attic that every now and then I, I want to get to. So you can buy my house, but you can't have the attic. Do you know something? There are some individuals who want to buy into the spirit-filled life, but there is part of reserve that they don't want God to touch. It may be the pornography that you have in a file on your computer. Your wife doesn't know about it, but God knows about it, and you know about it. It may be the relationship that you have someone when you're away from home and think nobody will know what I'm doing. Come clean with God if you expect Him to fill you with His Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Stop just a minute. You say, are you trying to tell me that God knows everything I do? Everything I think? Absolutely a hundred percent. Do you realize that there are satellites in space that are so powerful if you were standing out in the sun with your cell phone, it could zoom in and read whatever you have on your cell phone. God knows exactly the condition of your life. And if you're to be a spirit-filled Christian, you need to forsake that which you know is wrong. Number three, we're getting close to the jugular. Give yourself completely to the Lord. Right here, some people say, whoa, just a minute. He may make a fanatic out of me. He may send me to Timbuktu. He, hey, the devil is the one who puts those thoughts in your mind. He loves you. He wills his very best for you. When I wrote my doctoral dissertation, even before some of you were born, I came to the chapter how can you be a spirit-filled Christian? I read everything I could get my hands on. I consulted more than 200 books that were all trying to tell us the same thing. And then as I began to analyze what people were saying, it was kind of like the Hindu and the elephant. I said, they're all trying to say the same thing, but they're using different terminology. For example, Kenneth Wiest, who was a scholar at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, he said, the answer is trust. Trust God. C.I. Schofield, he's the one who gave us the notes for the Schofield Bible that your grandparents used, the, ones that I cut, the one that I cut my teeth on. Schofield said, you need to yield to the Holy Spirit. J. Wilbur Chapman, who was an evangelist, said, full surrender, full surrender is the answer. A.W. Simpson, who founded Christian Missionary Alliance, said that what you need to do is to empty yourself and let him fill you. A.W. Tozier, if you've never heard that name, believe me, he, write, he wrote good stuff. Tozier was a man of God. 
He said the key, and I totally agree with him, the key is presenting our bodies to the Lord. That means the gift of ourself to the Lord. We give ourselves to him that he may control and guide and direct. Wow. The act of commitment means that you hold back nothing and you yield and give yourself to him. The fourth thing, simply put, is to ask the Lord to fill you with the Holy Spirit. Now, my recommendation is that you go home, and if you're serious with God, go into your bedroom, turn off the TV, turn off your cell phone, and get on your knees with God and tell Him, I want the fullness of the Holy Spirit in my life. Jesus said, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. But could I anticipate what you're thinking? What happens to me then? I mean, what should I expect to happen? The answer to that question depends on three things. Number one, your personality. Are you an introvert or are you an extrovert? Number two, it also depends on your culture. And number three, your expectations. Here is a word of warning. Probably everybody in this building has heard about someone's experience. And you're thinking, I, I, I'm not sure I want what this guy has. May I tell you about three individuals? All of them were vastly different. The first was a man whose name was Dwight Lyman Moody, D.L. Moody. Moody grew up in poverty, had a heart for God, but he had no education. On one occasion, a woman went to him and said, I don't like your theology. He said, I didn't know I had any theology. Well, Dwight L. Moody was pastoring a thriving church in Chicago when a great fire burned down the building. He got on a train, and he went to New York City to try to raise money to build another building. Two women in that church had gone to Moody and said, Mr. Moody, we are praying that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Moody said, don't pray for me. Pray for people who need it. No, we are praying that you will be filled with the Holy Spirit. It sunk into his heart. When he got to New York City, he went to the home of a friend, and he said, do you have a room where I can have some quiet time with God? Forget about meals, forget about tea, just let me prostrate myself before God. And they did that. What took place in that bedroom was something Moody never talked about. But when he opened the door and he came out of that bedroom, he was a different Dwight L. Moody. And he began to preach the gospel, and God blessed him tremendously. But he didn't say, let me tell you about my experience. He was a changed person. The second individual that I want to tell you about was an attorney. How many attorneys do we have in our service today? Could I see your hands? Don't be ashamed. <laughs> Raise them. That's okay. Good. Okay. Great. 
His name was Charles Finney. Most of the attorneys that I know are not introverts. They are extroverts. You gotta be an extrovert to get attention. And he had a hunger for a work of the Holy Spirit. He went out into the woods and he knelt down by a tree and he began to pray and ask God to fill him with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said joy began to flood his heart, flood his heart. He said, God, stay your hand. I can't handle any more of this. Wow. The third that I want to tell you about was an intellectual, Reuben Archer Torrey. He was a pastor. He went to Cambridge or Oxford. He was an intellectual, but as a pastor, he felt like, I have no power. I preach the Word, but nothing happens. So he decided that he would either leave the ministry or he would connect with God. He told his secretary, hold my calls, don't interrupt me. And he went into his office and he got down on his knees before God. And God met him. He said it was the quietest thing he had ever experienced. He just knew that God had heard his prayer and filled him with his Holy Spirit. Don't look at somebody else's experience and expect yours to be the same thing. You are a unique individual, and God will meet you, but He will change your life. What can I expect? The fruit of the Spirit will begin to be operative in your life. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and long-suffering or temperance. The one incontrovertible evidence that you are a Spirit-filled Christian is your ability to love other people, including people who sometimes are not very lovable. It is God who loves them through you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 14. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So number five, accept the filling of the Holy Spirit by faith with thanksgiving and begin walking in obedience to the Lord. Oh, I will live a sinless life from then on. No way. No way. There will be times you will stumble, and you will have to say, Lord, I really blew that. I wasn't a very good representative. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And you will find a fresh infilling of God's Holy Spirit. It is time to get acquainted with the Holy Spirit. Would you bow with me in prayer? I would like to know, though, how many of you are here and you would say, Harold, there's an emptiness in my life. 
and there is a need, and I want God to fill that with Himself and to bring into my life the power that presently is lacking. I will ask you to do nothing other than to raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me, that's how I feel, with nobody looking around. If that's how you feel, would you slip your hand up all over the building? Oh, man, in every section there are hands that are going up from the balcony to the last thing. God knows your heart. You may take them down. God knows your heart. And I can assure you on the authority of God's Word that He will meet you and fill you with Himself. Mighty Father, you know every thought that every person in this building has had. We also know your Word. We are praying for your provision. Lord, you walked with the disciples, and then you said, I'm going back to heaven, but I will send you the promise of the Holy Spirit who will be being with you. So, Father, meet the deep need in the hearts and lives of the brothers and sisters who are here. Show them how great is your power and strength. This we pray in the strong name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Connect with CCF through the following websites. Jumpstart your spiritual journey by joining a small group. We are so blessed you were able to join us today. God bless and see you next time.